You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Oldridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Psalms. Here's Nate. Well, Psalm 130 is one of the psalms in the Psalter that is a song really of repentance and penitence before God. The backdrop of the song, although historically unknown, is a position of trouble for the singer. It says in verse 1, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Now, someone has said that the human condition is to be in trouble. We are a race, a species that is constantly in a battle for survival. It says in Job chapter 5, verse 7, that man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. And humanity, as it battles for survival, individual humans battle for survival as well. And those troubles in this song are referred to as the depths. And what we're going to see in this particular short song of ascent is the pilgrim who is climbing to Jerusalem or who has climbed to Jerusalem and now is returning to their home for their everyday life. The pilgrim has learned to cry to God from the depths of life. And in and from that position, as they cry to God from the depths, they become secondly awed by the grace of God. And as they're awed by the grace of God, they are then stimulated to continually wait upon God and eventually to testify to others about how effectual that waiting was uh, in their lives. And so here in this song, we're going to learn that we also must cry to God and then wait for God. So learning to cry to God from the depths and to be in awe of God due to his grace and to habitually wait for the Lord and to tell others how it will turn out if they do likewise. So the first element here is found in verse 1 and 2, which we already read, that the singer cries out to God and says, Out of the depths I cry to you, hear my voice and let your ears be attentive. The first thing that we need to do is to actually define what these depths are. There is no prescript to the song, so we don't have any concept or idea as to what kind of historical setting the pilgrim might be singing about. But in other psalms, the depths are connected to deep waters, literal deep waters or parabolic, symbolic deep waters in the form of a sea or a flood that have overcome the life of the singer or the author. So to be in the depths, biblically or from the Psalms, means that you are in despair because you're in a sea of troubles. You're in an ocean of troubles. Troubles have overwhelmed you like a flood. 
I like the way the message translates this. The bottom has fallen out of my life. Now, you may have been there at one point in your life, and you might someday be there again. And you might be there right now as you listen to this teaching. Right there in the depths, in a place where you are overwhelmed by the troubles of life. And if you're in that now or have been in that previously or know that the odds are you'll be in it again, this psalm is highly instructive for you. But what we see here is that this is a song that is birthed in and from tragedy. The singer is not embarrassed by their suffering. They don't treat their suffering like a big theological problem for philosophers and theologians to wrangle over. They don't see the suffering as something that is strange, a, a problem that must be eradicated for, after all, we must all live an exclusively, a solely happy life. No, that's not the way the pilgrim feels. The pilgrim understands that the depths are part of the pilgrim life. The depths are part of the, the Christian life. And of all people, disciples and pilgrims know that suffering is a normal part of life. Jesus suffered for us. We'll suffer in this broken world. God hates human suffering. So he planned a way to end it. It's just that his way to end it isn't to end it in the here and now, which would have made us unsuffering automatons. But he decided to eliminate our suffering through the cross, that those who would believe in him would enter into his eternity and home. And in his presence, there is no suffering because in his presence, only perfection can dwell. So this is important, though, for us to understand that we aren't offering glib answers or quick remedies. We're not escapists looking to drugs and to drink to intoxicate us from the reality of our lives. No, we understand as Christians that it's often in the suffering that we enter into the greatest depths of life and joy with and in Christ. It's there in the suffering that we find Jesus. Now, specifically, though, I should mention that it seems that the depths of this psalm are likely self-induced. Now, not all tragedies and not all depths, not all pains and sorrows in life are self-induced like some in ancient times have believed. No, many of our sorrows are just be there because of we live in a broken and fallen world and others have committed evil and we have committed evil and there's evil in the world. But there are some depths that have a connection to our own sin. And in this song later, the psalmist is going to sing about his own iniquities and about God's forgiveness and about God's redemption from iniquities. And so as this song progresses, you come more and more to a conclusion that these depths that he's singing from were caused by personal sin. Now, we all know about this, of course. We all know what this is like. We all know what it's like to, to make our bed and to feel that we must now sleep in it. And as difficult as it might be for us to understand pain, 
it seems like it's even more difficult for us to understand our invitation to run to God after we've sinned. Like I said, many of us think that we need to simply take a, I made my bed and now I have to sleep in it attitude. But that is not what grace would mandate. Grace would say things like in Romans chapter 8 verse 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Grace understands that when Jesus came, he ran straight for the demon affected, the sick, the sinful, and the unclean. Often, it is hard for us as people to run to God. You know, when, when someone else causes our pain, we might hesitate to run to God because we wonder if God has failed us. You know, where were you, Lord? This person abused me in this way or spoke ill of me in this way or cheated me in this way. Where were you? But when it's our own fault and when we've sinned and shame enters into our hearts, we also have difficulty running to God then because we wonder if God will receive us. I think it'd be good for us to learn from two men in Scripture, Jeremiah and Jonah. There was a time in Jeremiah's life where the people of Israel in Judah threw him into a pit and cast stones upon him. And from that pit, Jeremiah cried to the Lord. He didn't sit down there in that pit saying, you know, God has done this to me. God has made me miserable. Why would I cry out to him? No, from the pit, he cried out to the Lord. But then also, secondarily, we must learn from Jonah, who, when in the belly of the whale, cried out to God, Jonah chapter 2. In the middle of his distress that was completely and entirely a result of his own sin and rebellion, Jonah cried out to God and God extended his grace and his mercy to that man. In fact, it even seems to be part of God's plan that you and I would run to him as a result of the sin that is still in our lives. It tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 23, that we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that's believers who have the Holy Spirit inside of them, as all believers do. He says, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In other words, as we go through the failures of life, as our own bodies sell us short, we are groaning inwardly as we sense that physical but spiritual limitation that's upon us. It's God himself who's, who's induced that groaning thing because the spirit is now alive within you and within me as believers in Christ Jesus. And when we come up against our own shortcomings, our own failures, and our own sin, it is the Holy Spirit of God that, that causes us to yearn for the moment that our bodies will be redeemed. And so if you are in a place of failure, if you're in a place where you are in the depths, you also, like this pilgrim, should cry to the Lord. And as I say, if you are in that, open your eyes, allow the Spirit to bring illumination into your heart because certainly you are in that place because all of us 
are growing in Christ. And as we grow, we have to come face to face with those limitations that the Lord wants to touch and grow us from. Do not let your personal failures and limitations keep you from running after Jesus. He isn't looking for perfection, but he is looking for progress. Reach out to him. Cry out to him, even from the depths of your own failures. The cross is the grandest rescue mission in the history of mankind. And if God would do that for you, don't you think that he's willing to throw you a little life preserver from your more minor catastrophes? So the pilgrim here cries to God from the depths, even ones that have been brought on by his own sin. Now in verse 3, we see a second part of this process in the pilgrim's life. He's there crying out to God in part because of the catastrophe that's been brought upon him because of his own sin. And he says in verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So our pilgrim now has cried to God from the depths. And he tells us that he craves God's listening ear. Oh God, listen, you know, here, open your ear to me. But now he makes a theological point. And the point is simple. He says, if you, O oh Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? In other words, if God kept a record of sin, no one could stand before him. In other words, if if God is holding a record of your sin, you have no chance before God because his holiness drives all sin, all imperfection from his presence. But joyfully, the pilgrim says there in verse 4, forgiveness, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Fortunately, God's heart longs to forgive. And through Christ, he does forgive. This is the astounding truth that is mentioned all throughout the New Testament. When Paul gets to Romans chapter 3, verse 21, he's grasping the whole world as he's describing it as grasping for righteousness. How can the world be perfect in the eyes of God? How can the, how can the world be made holy in the eyes of God? What can, what can mankind do to be clean before God? And the absolute answer is nothing. There is nothing that any person in all of humanity and all of history could ever do to be made right in the sight of God. They are corrupt. We are corrupt to the core. Sin has invaded us. And even the kindest and most gentle and beautiful among us still have been affected and impacted, not just by the sin of others, but by our own sin. We have been born in sin. And with that imperfection, we cannot stand in the presence of the Lord. So how can it come that God would no longer mark our iniquities so that we can stand before God. Well, that's where Paul says in Romans 3.21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith.
In other words, Jesus Christ is our avenue to be able to have God release our iniquities, let go of our iniquities so that we can now stand before the Father. It isn't just the release of iniquities, but it is the imputation of Christ's perfection. And with that, we stand before the Lord. This means that the ingredients that are necessary to stand before God is, number one, a realization of sin, and secondly, an offshoot of that, of the need for God's forgiveness. If a person is blind to sin and scoffs at forgiveness and merely thinks that God should accept everyone as is, they will not be able to stand in the presence of God because their view is prohibiting them from receiving the very one who would release them from their iniquity. Now the singer of our song, he actually goes on to say, here's the result. You know, you forgive. There's forgiveness with you. And the result is that you may be feared. Now this helps us actually understand the Old Testament concept of the fear of the Lord. Because if the fear of the Lord meant some kind of servile fear where we are to cower before God, then when forgiveness is given, that servile fear of God would actually not increase, but it would be diminished. But instead, what happens to us when we're forgiven by God is that we have a sense of wonder and worship and amazement, a sense of reverent awe because of it. That is the proper understanding of the fear of the Lord. It is a reverent awe, worship, seeing God as beautiful because of the glorious grace that he extends to humanity. A cynic once said, God will forgive me, it's his job. That is a view, that it's such a low view of God. It has no worship in it. It has no, no awe in it. It has no strong sense of what sin is and what forgiveness is, nor what forgiveness cost. A better picture would be the woman, the sinful woman in Simon's house from Luke chapter 7. Do you remember how she came in and she broke the alabaster flask before Jesus and she wiped his feet and his head with her hair and with her tears? Jesus said to Simon, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he was forgiven little, loves little. Why was she so extravagant in her worship? Why was she so over the top in her devotion? Why did she love so much? Because she'd been forgiven by Christ, likely previously, many sins. But when a person has been forgiven very little, when they don't really understand the forgiveness of God, when they haven't even experienced any of the forgiveness of God in their lives, it's not even something they've partaken of, let alone realized. When that is the case, the love from that person's heart will be little. It will be minimal. 
No, it's the forgiveness of God. It's the grace of God that leads to the reverence of God. This pilgrim is in awe of God because of his forgiveness. And the deeper you go into forgiveness, the deeper you'll go into worship. This doesn't mean that you must sin more in order to be forgiven more. It merely means that your eyes must be more opened to all that God has redeemed and forgiven you of. And true grace does this exact thing. It creates this awe. True grace does not embolden sin, but it enlivens worship. It enlivens obedience. Paul said in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And at the end of his sentence, he said, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In other words, true grace has now appeared. And when you receive it, it makes you into a zealot for God and his love. So here the pilgrim just simply celebrates that there is nothing that God cannot break into, no sin that God cannot redeem. So from those depths, all broken because of sin, all broken because of the consequences of life, sitting there in his mess, he cries out to God and asks for forgiveness and says, verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word, I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Now, here he talks about this concept of waiting for the Lord, his soul waiting for the Lord. How ought we to wait for God? Well, partly we wait for the Lord daily. We wait for the Lord expectantly, like Moses when he went to the mountaintop with his tablets. But we wait with patience. Have you ever stopped to consider that our theology as Christians demands at times unanswered prayer? I mean, if he is God and we are not, if he is infinite and we are not, if he is always good and we are not, then it stands to reason that God will perhaps even often say no to the prayers that come from our limited, sometimes tainted by evil, non-divine minds and hearts. Only he ultimately knows his own wise plans for the future, and we do not. So from our limited perspective, we would imagine that there would be times that we would pray things that are just totally inappropriate, and that God should because he's God and perfect and pure and loving and holy and righteous, should reject straightforwardly and without a second thought. No, our theology demands that at times we would pray prayers that are unanswered. Additionally, we 
don't always know how or what to pray for, Romans 8, 26. We don't always pray according to God's will, James 4, verse 3. We don't always ask in faith, James chapter 1. So we can expect that there would be moments where our prayers would seem ineffective. Paul prayed prayers that God did not answer in the affirmative. David prayed prayers that God did not answer in the affirmative. And even Jesus did to a degree in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed for the cup to pass from him. Nevertheless, not as I will, he said, but as you will, he said to the Father. But the pilgrim understands that about his cry to God. But leaning upon God's grace waits for the Lord to move, waits for the Lord's reply, waits for the Lord to reveal himself perfectly, even if he needs to go around in a different way the prayer that I've prayed unto God. Now, I think that Noah is a great example for us in how to wait for the Lord. You know, because especially in connection to this psalm, because what we're dealing with is a psalmist who is sitting there in his disaster. Noah had built the ark and gone through the flood, which had lasted for 40 days. But then after the flood, he was there in that boat as the waters prevailed on the earth for another five months. And then after another month or so, when the ark began to rest on Mount Ararat, and it took another month for the mountains to become visible. Then it took another month or so where he sent out the raven and then three times sent out the dove. And then finally, another month or so before they could finally depart from the ark. And I think that he serves as a great example for waiting for the Lord, especially after a disaster. I've seen so many people who, there they are in their depths, there they are in their misery, and they just quickly cry out to God, and there's no waiting at all. They just expect immediately to be able to get off that boat. They expect immediately, the storm is over, let's go back to everyday normal life. But the reality is, is that that disaster is going to take a little time to subside. Don't expect too much too soon after a disaster. If you have sexually sinned against someone, for example, you need to expect that there are going to be ramifications of that that are much longer than just a five-minute conversation where it ends with them saying, yes, I do forgive you, and then it's over with. No, you're going to be experiencing God's redemption, but it will be a process. So the grace of God here in this song invites us to wait for God in strong hope, like a watchman waits for the morning. Being a watchman is one of those jobs where it doesn't feel like you're doing very much, but it's actually very necessary. You're actually employed to simply wait for the morning time to come. Just keep an eye on things. Doesn't feel like you're doing a lot, but it is a lot. And the people that are trusting you to just watch over the building or watch over them as they sleep, you are important to them whether they say it or not. And so this is an important work to wait upon the Lord. 
O Israel, he concludes the song, verse 7, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So, so far, we've seen that we must cry to God from the depths, even the self-induced ones. And we've also seen that it is good for us to be in awe of God specifically because of his forgiveness. And we also realize that we are to wait for God in strong hope. But finally, and lastly, we see in these final two verses, the song take a turn. No longer is the pilgrim speaking to himself or to God, but now he speaks to the congregation. O Israel, hope in the Lord. They've gone on this pilgrimage together, so they're close enough now after that road trip to be able to exhort each other. And here he exhorts the, the crowd. He says, hope in the Lord. Because with the Lord is plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. One reason that we're to place our hope in the Lord, one reason we're to wait for the Lord is because he can redeem iniquities. And, and what he says there is that he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is an allusion to the original exodus. And what he's saying here is that the original exodus happened not because God was a one-hit wonder, but because he's a hit maker. He continually redeems from slavery. The exodus was his nature. And every believer has had their share of redeemed iniquities. And then also, he says, we're to wait for the Lord, to hope in the Lord, because with him there is steadfast love. And this is true. God is love. And God, God's love, a good way to think of it, is that he eternally gives of himself to others. Even before we were around, the Father gave of himself to the Son. The Son gave of himself to the Father. They gave of themselves to the Spirit. God was giving of himself. And for that reason... When we enter into eternity, I think we're going to experience an explosion of love like we've never known. Because heaven is going to be a place where love is so dominant that everyone is perpetually and constantly in response to the God who started it all, giving of themselves to others. So, let that exhortation sink into your heart. Wait for the Lord. Hope in the Lord. Because with him, there's redemption. And with him, there is love. God bless you. And amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.